You know, um, when we when we shot the announcement video that we were going to do this this thing called Church in the Open, uh, one of the things that I, I feel like is a conviction that God has only caused to grow in my life is the conviction that the gathering of God's people as we worship Jesus and remember what he's done for us at the cross and all that it means for us, that that gathering of people really is the closest thing to heaven that we're going to experience on this earth. And when we put these um, services together for the, the, you know, the months and the months that it took to get this off the ground, uh, that's really what our goal was. That, that's what our, our desire was for, for all of you uh, joining us here physically and those online uh, would, would be that you had an experience that was the closest thing to heaven that you're going to experience on this earth. And um, I'm, I'm pleased to say that I think we hit that mark last week. And I say that because I got a text message from a concerned mother. And she asked me to make this announcement on the front end of this teaching. So I'm going to read this conversation to you. She has a young son. And she texted me after last Sunday and said, just FYI, my son thought that church in the open was heaven and you were God. He's been drawing stories about Sarah, our worship leader, and quote-unquote God in heaven the past couple of days, to which I said, I can officially retire now. And she followed up by saying, for next service, I would like you to clarify that you are not in heaven and you are not God. There's children's souls at stake here. So I want to begin by saying, this is not heaven, and this is not God. And I'm sorry if that comes as a shock to anyone, but trust me when I say it's better that you get this straight now than later. Uh, I want to welcome you to week two of our series from the book of Acts. Today we're covering a really famous story. It's the, the, uh, the day of Pentecost. This is actually the third time that I'm preaching through the book of Acts in my time as a pastor and historically, when I've referred to the day of Pentecost, I've, I've called it the day that the church was born. Um, but I, I, I realize now that that's actually not entirely accurate. And the reason I say that is because the word church, when it's used in Scripture, is, is basically a word that refers to called out ones. And the truth is, prior to Acts 2, God had been calling out people to himself for thousands of years, really all the way uh, since, since the book of Genesis when he was dealing with a man named Abraham. Um, and so what, what happened that was unique on the day of Pentecost is, uh, is not so much that God's people were created, it's that the Holy Spirit descended in a new way and in a transforming way that made things possible for the people of God that were never thought to be possible prior to that moment in history. And so it's not so much that God's people were created so much as they were, were almost replanted and relaunched. And so that, that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which I'm going to read through with you on the front end. And it says this. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were ast astounded and amazed, saying, 
Look, aren't all these who, who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? But some sneered and said, they're full of new wine. So what I would like to do today is basically ask the same question that the day of Pentecost had the first uh, spectators asking, which is, what does all of what I just read, what does that mean? What does it actually mean to be filled with the Spirit? And to answer that question, I want to look at the three phenomena that Luke tells us accompanied uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and what those phenomena mean. And what it boils down to, I'll give it to you on the, three, uh, on the front end, it boils down to three things. To be filled with the Spirit, first off, is all about an outside power, an inner wonder, and then thirdly, an obsession with the gospel. So with that, I want to get right to our first idea today. It's that being spirit-filled means an encounter with an outside power. And we see this right in the first phenomena associated with the day of Pentecost in, in verse 2, which says, Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were saying, so what we read here is that first and foremost, uh, the people there that day uh, heard and felt something that was like a violent rushing wind. But the detail that, that catches my eye here is we're specifically told that this was a wind that found its origin in heaven. And so the point is that the people that had an encounter with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost experienced something powerful, but it was something powerful that came from outside of them. And so being filled with the Spirit means foundationally, it means to have an encounter with a divine power that comes from outside of you. So when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, it's not just some emotional, psychological experience that arises from within you that gives you a hit of dopamine or serotonin that, that gives you the strength to face the day. And immediately in understanding this, where we find ourselves already is, is, is really at, at, at odds colliding with our culture and what our culture tells us about what our real problems are and the real solution to those problems. Uh, let me just tell you something I'm sure you're, you're, you're already aware of. Our culture teaches us to believe that all of our problems come primarily from outside of us. That, that my problems primarily stem from my job or my boss or my you know, relationships, my marriage, my kids, my childhood, the way that other people are treating me. Uh, and actually, I, I think it's appropriate to say that one of the ways that you can know that you've been conditioned to think by our culture is if you and I find ourselves in a situation in life where we're surrounded by problems, whether that's you know, professional or relational or, or personal, and yet we refuse to entertain the idea that we have a part to play in any of those. And we sort of assume this role of, of a victim because that's how our culture teaches us to think, that all of our problems come primarily from outside of us, but the strength to overcome those problems comes primarily from within us. And what Christianity teaches is exactly the opposite of that. Christianity actually requires that you and I accept the reality that, that our main problems come from within our own hearts, that our main problems stem from our own self-centeredness and our own selfishness and our proclivity to look to other things and people to be what only God can be for us. 
And, and yet God has power that can come outside of us and, and change us in ways that we need to change. This week I read an article that, that speaks to this. It was written by a woman named Lori Gottlieb called What Brand Is Your Therapist? And in this article, she pointed out that in the last 15 years, there'd been about a 30% decrease in, in people who were going to psychotherapy. And she was, a, she was both a journalist and a therapist herself, and so she started interviewing people who had been working as therapists for years. And, um, and as she interviewed them, uh, they told her that what decades in the field of psychotherapy revealed is, is that there's been basically a monumental shift in the way that people think uh, about their, their problems and, and, and the solution to their problems. Uh, namely, that years ago, people would come to a professional with this mindset that said, I need to understand myself and change because they believed that their, primi- their, their, their problems were primarily an internal thing. But in recent years, people began uh, subscribing to this idea that their main problem was the other people in their lives. And, and so in this article, Lori Gottlieb was interviewing a woman who had, had uh, served as a therapist for a number of decades, and that woman said that compared to when she got started as a, as a psychotherapist, now when she would speak or, or, or put out a newsletter or anything like that, she had to brand it much differently. And she said that when she, she uh, um, as she continued in, in that field, she said, and this is a direct quote, I'd see fewer and fewer people coming in and saying, I want to change. And what she began seeing more of is people who would come in because they wanted something else or someone else to change. And so in professional networking events or newsletters, this woman's pitch in order to get clients to keep coming in to, in, into her, uh, her office so she, she could stay in business, it went from when she got started, I treat people with depression and anxiety, to are you having trouble with the difficult people in your life? She had to do that. She had to completely rebrand herself in order to continue to generate clientele. And so what Lori Gottlieb pointed out in this article is that there's been this monumental shift in thinking that has created a culture of people who say, my problem is not in me, it's, it's outside of me. My problem is not me, it's all of the people around me. And although that might seem like you know, a comfortable mentality to take through life, I, I think it's actually a hopeless one. Because if, if you think about it, if you adopt a mindset that says that all of, of your and my problems come from situations and people that are beyond our control, then we will remain victims defined by the things that happen around us our entire lives. But if we can accept the teaching of Christianity, that our problems mainly arise from within us, as painful as that might be on the front end, I actually think that's a very freeing thing to accept. And I actually think it's a very hopeful thing to accept because what scripture also teaches us is that God has power that can come into our lives and change us. And so first and foremost, what we see from Pentecost is that being spirit-filled means an encounter with a power that is outside of us. But the second thing the story shows us, and this is our second idea, is that being spirit-filled means an experience of inner wonder. And in verse 3, we see the second uh, phenomena that was associated with the descent of the Spirit. Verse 3 says, And tongues, like flames of fire that were divided, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, first off, the imagery of fire is, is really significant, biblically speaking, because all throughout the Old Testament, whenever the presence of God would manifest itself, it would do so in fire. So when God established his covenant with Abraham, he manifested himself as a flaming torch. Uh, the, the first time that God 
uh, spoke to Moses, he did, through, uh, uh, he did so through a burning bush. And when he descended on the summit of Mount Sinai to impart his law to the children of Israel, he descended on that mountain in smoke and fire. And when you read those accounts, you'll see that whenever the fire of God showed up, it was not a comforting thing for people. It was a horrifying thing for people, and actually sometimes it was a fatal thing for people. But what happened on the day of Pentecost that marked a remarkable turning point for God's people that that really no one prior to this would have ever seen coming is that, in effect, on the day of Pentecost, every single Christian became their own personal burning bush is what it boils down to. And the presence of God, the fire of God that was once fatal now rested on everyone who had a relationship with Jesus. And something to consider that I think we take for granted is that in the room where this happened were the apostles. Now, in the history of the church, there has never been and will never be again church leaders like the apostles. Because these were people that had been hand-selected and trained and, and discipled and deployed by the Son of God himself. But what's remarkable from from Acts chapter 2, what we're reading, is that they're not the only ones who got the Holy Spirit. Everyone did. And so the the question that I wanted to keep getting back to this morning and and digging into is the question, well, what does that actually mean? In other words, what does it mean to receive the fullness of the Spirit? And, you know, most of my life I didn't have... I didn't have a a, a real good read on what that actually meant. Because Scripture, when it talks about the Holy Spirit of God, it reminds us that the Spirit does a number of things. We're told that he guides us into all truth. We're told that he convicts the world of sin. Uh, He he brings to remembrance what God has done for us in Jesus. But I, I just recently, this was really illuminating to me, I just recently heard a pastor explain that if you if you study what Scripture has to say and you kind of follow it, when talking about the fullness of the Spirit, there's a certain thread throughout. Uh, For instance, when Jesus, at his baptism, has the Spirit descend on him, the very first thing that happens is he hears a voice saying, you are my beloved Son, and I take delight in you. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, we're told that for, for every single Christian, what happens when we give our life to Jesus is that the Spirit comes into our hearts And he bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. That we don't relate to God as slaves to a master. We relate to God as children to a father. And so this isn't a work-based relationship that we we have with God in which if we don't produce, he's going to be done with us. We relate to him with all of the vulnerability uh, and all the constancy and all the intimacy of children to a father. And so really, uh, the, the job and the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of that relationship. And I think that the, the best story that I've ever heard that highlights exactly what this looks like comes from a, he was a 17th century Brit, British Puritan pastor named Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin tells the story, he saw, um, he saw one evening a father and a son walking side by side on a street. And out of nowhere, uh, the father stopped And he swept his son up in his arms and he wrapped his arms around his son. And he kissed him and he told him how much he loved him. And his son uh, wrapped his arms around his dad's neck. And they had, you know, a a really powerful, really emotional moment there. And after that was done, the father set his son back down and they continued to walk side by side. And reflecting on that, Thomas Goodwin asked the question, was that little boy more of a son to his father in his father's arms than he was on the street? 
and in a legal sense, no. In a legal sense, what that father did that evening made absolutely no difference. Legally, that boy was just as much his father's son on the road as he was in his dad's arm. But in a psychological sense, and in an emotional sense, and in an experiential sense, what his dad did for him made all the difference in the world because it was in his father's arms that he experienced exactly how much his dad loved him. And according to scripture, it's the Holy Spirit's role in our lives to do the same thing for us. That when the Spirit comes down on you in fullness, you sense your Father's love for you. And, and, and probably the best way to know that this is taking place in your life is when you can get outside of whatever situation you're in right now. And in all the, the frustration or the anxiety or the, the, the anger or whatever it is that you might have going on in your life about what you're going through or what, what might you might have waiting for you tomorrow, you know that, that you're operating out of the fullness of the Spirit of God when you're able to get outside of yourself and have a conversation with your heart where you basically tell yourself, hang on a second here. If what Scripture tells me about God and His love for me, if what Scripture tells me is true, that God loves me so much that He did not spare His own Son for me but freely gave Him up to bring me into His family, and if that same God promises that he's never going to lose me, he's never going to leave me, and nothing can separate me from his love, and that one day he will remake me entirely and give me a new body that is totally free from the presence of sin altogether and wipe away every tear from my eyes such that there will never be another tear again, if all of that is true, then what am I worried about? Why, why am I concerned about finances? Why am I concerned about what other people think about me? Why am I concerned even about what happens to this physical body if what Scripture says is true about my relationship with God? And when you can have that kind of conversation with your own heart, it's because you're filled with the Spirit of God. And according to Scripture, the Holy Spirit is testifying to your spirit, your personal spirit, about the relationship that Jesus has purchased for you with his own blood at Calvary. And, and as goofy as this next part might sound to you, that, that's what happens internally. What that looks like externally to people around you is it looks like you're drunk. Because look at verse 13 here. On the day of Pentecost, when people saw believers for the first time ever filled with the Holy Spirit of God, they were convinced that they were hammered drunk at 9 in the morning. And Paul the Apostle kind of followed that theme in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where he told us not to be filled with wine, but rather to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And for Paul to compare and contrast those two ideas means that on the one hand, being filled with the Spirit must be like being drunk, while on the other hand, it's unlike being drunk. All right, first off, it's like being drunk because of the joyful fearlessness it produces, or the, the people observing Christians in Acts chapter 2 were convinced that they were drunk because they were too happy to be bothered by everything else that was going on in their life. And essentially what had happened was they had lost all their inhibitions. They were, they were just, there was too much joy in their life. It didn't make any sense. And on the outside looking in, that really resembled drunkenness to people because certainly alcohol can at least mimic that effect in our lives. But the Holy Spirit of God does this in a way that's exactly the opposite of alcohol. As some of you may know, specifically if you have a medical background, alcohol is actually classified as a depressant, meaning not that it makes you depressed, but it actually depresses your brain function. And so medically speaking, the reason that you're happy when you're drunk is because you're stupid. 
What alcohol actually does is it turns down your brain and hides reality from you so that you're less bothered or troubled or worried or anxious about whatever it is you have waiting for you tomorrow. What the Holy Spirit of God does is, is, is creates joy in your life by doing the exact opposite that alcohol does. It doesn't hide reality from you. It makes you more aware of ultimate reality, the reality that the only being whose opinion ultimately matters loves you has already given up everything in order to bring you into his family and has promised to never let you go. The Holy Spirit makes you and I more aware of that reality. And when that happens, the things that bothered us will always become smaller. And so the self-consciousness that we carry begins to dissolve. And and the things that, that used to control us begin to lose their grip on us. And, and, and you move out into life with a, with a seemingly unexplainable joy. So, so secondly, being spirit-filled means an experience of inner wonder. But thirdly, and, and this is going to be our last idea, it's that the Spirit of God uh, means an obsession with the gospel. Uh, and here we see what, what people were actually talking about and what they were actually focused on on the day of Pentecost in verses 4 and 11. It says, Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. And then in verse 11, we see what people heard that day. And they said, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. So, so here we see what people were, were actually saying. All right, they, were, they were happy and they were, were joyful to the, to the point that people accused them of drunkenness. But notice they weren't talking about how happy they were. They weren't talking about how joyful they were. They weren't talking about the experience that they were having. They were talking about what what Luke calls the magnificent acts of God. And all that is is a reference to to God's acts of salvation for his people throughout history. In the Old Testament, that's a reference specifically to God parting the Red Sea so that the nation of Israel could be delivered from, from oppression in Egypt. In the New Testament, that's a reference to what God has done for us in Jesus to liberate us from the power of sin in the grave. And so the point being, the people at Pentecost that day were, 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 were talking about the gospel, which means that the third mark of being filled with the Spirit is to, out of this joy that God is producing in your life, be obsessed with the gospel to the point that it, it's not work for you to talk to other people about it. It's not that you'll feel really guilty if you don't tell other people about it. It's that it is your desire and your joy will not be completed until what God has done for you in your heart leaves you on your lips to the people that he's placed in your life. That's the third mark of being filled with the Spirit. But what I want to focus on here is this detail that Luke tells us that this first presentation of the gospel on the day of Pentecost came out in every single language at once. All right, as some of you may know, on the day of Pentecost, what would happen is Jews that had been scattered all over the world would return to Jerusalem to visit and to worship. But because they lived all over the ancient world, a lot of them did not speak Hebrew as their first language or maybe didn't speak Hebrew at all. But Luke could not be more clear about what happened here, and this is really important. What he tells us, it's not that that everyone present suddenly understood Hebrew when they heard the gospel. What happened is that they heard the gospel in their own language. And so what, what happened here is that God, by this deliberate miracle, ensured that the gospel was translated into every language and therefore every culture, which meant that no language and no culture has precedence over any other in the Christian faith. Now, I don't think naturally 
I understand the significance of this, and, and, and maybe that's true of you as well. But what I want to do here is borrow some of the thoughts from an individual named, named Laman Sane to kind of explain the significance of this. Laman Sane is an African. He's a, uh, a former Muslim. He now teaches at Yale Divinity School as the professor of missions. And he, he, in his book, he wrote a book called Translating the Message, where he, he deals a lot with the significance of um, Pentecost. And in that book... He points out something that I didn't know prior to this week. Maybe you're aware of, but, but, but Muslims will tell you that the Quran cannot be translated. I never knew that before. That even if you get the Quran in English on, on, you know, near the, the front of the book, maybe on the cover page, you'll see a little message that says something to the effect of the fact that what you have is not really the Quran. It's just the English paraphrase thereof. And the reason for that uh, is because as far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks Arabic. All the original revelation of Islam was in Arabic. And so if you really want to hear God's word, then you have to hear it in Arabic. But you compare that to what happened on the day of Pentecost, and, and you, you can understand why he says that Christianity is so radically different from that. Because we believe, based on what we see here in Acts 2, what we believe is that the word of God can be translated. And that regardless of whether or not you have it in Aramaic, or in Hebrew, or in English, or in German, or in whatever, what you have before you is still the word of God. And Laman Sane goes on to point out that there is, within Islam, there's a unified Islamic culture to the point that, that really any, you see this over the, over the last several thousand years actually, that, that any place on the planet where Islam becomes ascendant, what happens is it, is it usually takes that culture and it makes it unified with the rest of Islamic culture, meaning that anywhere you see Islam pop up across the globe, it tends to manifest itself in the same way. It looks and feels culturally the same, but he points out that Christianity does not do that. As a matter of fact, it's entirely appropriate to say that, that Christianity is actually the most culturally diverse religion on the face of the earth. And, and, and what it's done for the last 2,000 years is it takes radically different forms. Because of Pentecost, where we see that there is no one language, and therefore there is no one culture that can be considered the right culture within the belief system known as Christianity. So what Christianity does and has done is it goes into every culture, and certainly it challenges every culture in different ways, but it does so while renewing and, every, renewing and honoring every culture that it enters into without steamrolling that culture. And Laman Sane went further than that to say, maybe this will surprise you like it surprised me, that Christianity is not only more, more culturally diverse than other religions, it's actually more culturally diverse than secularism itself. And he explains that by explaining, as an African, what it means to be an African. The, the core, according to him, the core of what it means to be an African is to believe that the world is spiritually alive, that it's full of both, both, both good and evil spirits. And he said that if you, as an African, go to any you know, Ivy League, Western, secular institution over here, you know, take, take anyone uh, that you feel like, be it Brown, Columbia, Harvard, you name it, if you as an African attend one of those universities, then, then on the one hand, they'll celebrate cultural diversity. And they'll talk about how important that is and how great that is and how you know, we should all fight for that. And they'll do so by, he said, you know, they'll applaud the dress that you wear, the clothing that you wear, you know, the way that you look. And they'll, they'll applaud the music that you listen to or the food that you eat or whatever it is. But they'll turn around in giving you a good old secular uh, uh, education. Uh, they'll tell you that there are no spirits because everything in this world has a perfectly, naturally scientific explanation. 
which is the core tenet of secularism, that there is no spiritual world, there is no supernatural reality, there is only a scientific explanation for this natural world. And so secularism, he said, what it actually does is it winds up flattening your Africanness, whereas Christianity refuses to do that. And what he said is that Christianity, when it permeated Africa, is it actually helped Africans become renewed Africans, rather than culturally forcing them to become a culture other than what they were. And, and, and here's how, how he explains it. Like I just mentioned, he said that, that, that Africans see the world as a place that is spiritually alive. And Christianity accepts that reality. It accepts the reality of a spirit world and supernatural reality. But it challenged African culture by showing Jesus as the victor over every evil spirit. And Calvary shows us that Jesus became the victor over evil spirits, not by, not by manipulation or coercion or violence, but through love and sacrifice and service. And so what he said is that Christianity will come into your life and it will renew you as an African, but it will, it will, it will leave you an African and honor you as an African in a way that, that no other religion and not even secularism itself will, despite all its talk of celebrating cultural diversity. And really, you could go through every single culture on the planet and talk about how Christianity does this in a way that no other belief system will. And, and so if you're wondering what does that mean for us today practically, here, here, here's what this means. Here's what Pentecost reminds us of. What this means is that we can never take our culture's expression of Christianity and believe that that's the only valid expression of Christianity, that ours is the only real Christianity. So, you, know, you and I might have really strong opinions about what a sermon should be like, uh, about what worship should be like, about what a church service itself should be like, but what we don't get to do is say, you know, I love 45-minute expository sermons with lots of Greek and Hebrew words interlaced uh, because that's real Christianity, not that, you know, that, that, that style of preaching where the speaker kind of moves around a lot and gets really emotional and fired up and, and animated and all that kind of stuff. That's watered down. We don't get to do that because at Pentecost, God refused to let the gospel go out through one language and therefore one culture. And so on the one hand, this, this story, this passage challenges us to not insist that our particular version of Christianity is the only valid expression of Christianity. And on the other hand, what this means is we should work. We, we, we should not only be open to the idea, but we should work towards being as, as racially and culturally diverse as we can be in the family of God. Because obviously, from, from the day that the Spirit fell onward, that's what the Spirit of God desires. So, so the last question that I wanted to speak to today is, is why did this all take place on the day of Pentecost? Obviously, God doesn't do anything on accident, and he could have sent his Holy Spirit on any day. So why is it that God decided to do this on Pentecost? Pentecost was, was celebrated 50 days after Passover, and, and originally it was when God gathered the nation of Israel at the base of Sinai to establish his covenant relationship with him. And if you, can pay, if you compare the first Pentecost at Mount Sinai with this Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what you'll find is that there's, there's similarities, but there's also some really important differences. All right, first off, in both cases, God came down to people. And there was, there was fire, there was wind, and there was a message. But on Sinai, what's, what's remarkably clear is that people were terrified when this happened. And they knew that they couldn't bear to stand before God themselves, and so they needed a mediator who was Moses in their case. But on this Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, what happens is the fire of God does not come down on a mountain. It comes down on every single believer. 
And the word that came down from God was not the word of the law telling us what we needed to do for him. It was the word of the gospel telling us what he had done for us in Jesus that we could never do. And back then when people heard the word of God, they could not bear to hear even another whisper out of the mouth of the Almighty. But on Acts, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost and throughout the rest of the book of Acts, what you'll see as you move through this book is that when people heard the word of God, they were on the edge of their seat and they wanted to hear more. It doesn't mean that everybody accepted it, but when they heard it, they wanted to hear more. And the reason for that is because we have a better mediator in Jesus than the nation of Israel did in Moses. And so now this fire of God, this manifest presence of God that was fatal to people in the Old Testament, now, through a relationship with Jesus, enters into your life, and it saves you, and it heals you, and it transforms you in ways that would never otherwise be possible except that God would send his spirit to us. And if you really want to understand everything that God was beginning to do on the day of Pentecost you should actually go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. And what you'll find in Genesis 11 is the story that, that, that people got together to build this tower called Babel. Uh, and the reason they did that was in open defiance against God. They wanted to cut God out of their lives, make great names for themselves, and basically build a religion apart from God. And so what, what, what God did is he judged them by making them unable to understand each other. And the picture that the Tower of Babel story leaves us with is that because of mankind's pride and arrogance, the human race is divided. But when you compare that to the story in, in Pentecost and Acts 2, what you see is that in Genesis chapter 11, there's one language, and yet no one can understand each other. Whereas in Acts chapter 2, there's many different languages and yet people could. And that's because the curse of Babel, this is what God started doing on the day of Pentecost, is the curse of Babel is beginning to be reversed. And people that were once divided and could not understand each other are now being brought together and experiencing unity. And it's only because the judgment for our sin, for our pride, for our arrogance, for our proclivity to put ourselves in the place of God, the judgment of that fell on Jesus himself. And so what God does all throughout the book of Acts and what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years in his church is he's bringing together people that could never otherwise be brought together. And he's causing them, he's turning them into brothers and sisters by grace through faith in his son, Jesus. And so I'll leave you with this. Here's what that means, Here's what that means for us. Here's what this means to be a part of the church and to be a part of this local expression of the church, this local ecclesia is the word that Jesus used. It means that this is not just a place for you to come and get your individual needs met, like a spiritual service station where you fill up and you're on your way. This is not only, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. This is not only a place for you to come and get your needs met spiritually or emotionally or psychologically. This is a place and this is a community for the barriers to come down between people. So that we as a group of people can show the world how the human race can be healed under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you want to be a part of something like that, but more than anything, I do. More than anything, I want to spend my life being a part of that. Because that's what God clearly shows me in his word that he wants to do. And whatever he wants to do is worth every single breath that I have in this momentary trip around the block that we call life. And if you want to be a part of this too... Then, then the, the final lesson that Pentecost re reveals to us is that you can only be a part of what God wants to do through his spirit. You can only be a part of what God wants to do if you're filled with his Holy Spirit. And if in hearing that you say, well, I don't know if I'm filled enough with God's spirit. 
I don't know that I've had this experience of inner wonder. I don't, I don't remember the last time I've had a real encounter with his love. And if that's where you're coming from, then the best advice that I can give you is to keep coming back and to keep leaning in. Because that's exactly what the story in Acts is all about. And in the meantime, keep asking your heavenly father for more of himself. Because according to Jesus, that is a prayer that he will always eventually answer. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I just want to ask you for exactly what we saw here, that we would have an encounter with you through your Holy Spirit. This is not a complicated prayer. This is simple. God, we are made to be satisfied, sustained, and fulfilled with nothing less than an encounter with our Creator. Would you give that to us now, Father? Would you lift us up? Would you glorify yourself in our lives to the point that we can see and focus on nothing other than you? Because that's where we live. That's where we move. That's where we have our being. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.